what are you hunting down? What are you aggressively pursuing? What are you chasing down with intentionality in your life? Are you aggressively pursuing? Are you stalking the kingdom of God? Are you methodically planning and preparing yourself to take hold of it? Are you seizing every opportunity that might be out there to grab it? Are you all in? Are you going after it? Are you hunting it down? Or are you hunting down something different? Are you hunting down the things of this world? The lies that the things of this world can fulfill you? That the next fill in the blank is going to you know, somehow finally you're going to arrive. The next promotion, the next house, the next vehicle, right? The next relationship, the next whatever. What are you hunting down? Is it the kingdom of God or is it the kingdoms of this world? How many of you, you can raise your hand if you want or, or not, but how many of you have ever found yourself interested in something, becoming passionate about something uh, that you feel is totally normal, but that at some point you recognize it's a bit weird? Like there's a point where you realize this isn't normal. Normal, quote unquote, people don't do this, or most people don't really care about this, and, but I'm passionate about it. I saw recently the guy who has the world's largest collection of Ronald McDonald memorabilia. That's weird. Like, at some point, he probably started collecting this and felt like it was a normal thing. But then believe me, if you see this, he crossed the line and then some. It's for lots of reasons, but mostly because Ronald McDonald's the creepiest thing ever. Why you'd want to collect stuff and have like life-size Ronald McDonald statues in your house, I don't know. The, thing of, the stuff of nightmares, right? So have you heard me talk some before about my all-time favorite author, uh, Annie Dillard is her name, and I've quoted her many, many, many times, but she has this great story in one of her books. Uh, it's a compilation, a collection of essays uh, where she talks about how she's at kind of like this dinner party with a whole bunch of people. Most of them she didn't know. She got invited there by a friend who was hosting, but she didn't know most of the people there. And if you know anything about Annie Dillard, she was brilliant, still is, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant author, brilliant thinker in so many different ways. She was also a naturalist. So one of her books, she spent two years living out basically in a shack on a creek and just observed nature and would write about nature and would read about nature and learn all these things. And she said at this dinner party, that she was talking to this gentleman who she didn't know, and she found herself explaining to him all of this information about uh, praying mantises. Is that right? Praying mantises or manti? I don't know which one it is. Praying mantises. And she was talking to him about how they, you know, interact, and she got into the description of the mating habits of, of praying mantises. And she, sees, she realizes at some point, like, she feels like this is totally no, normal topic of conversation because she's been immersed in it for years. But she realizes this gentleman is looking back at, back at her with just this, like, blank look, complete disinterest, like, how can I get out of here, you know, and avoid this conversation? And she's like, she realizes at that moment that, you know, he doesn't care, but what he's failing to realize is she is trying to change his life. That's what she says. Like, this for him was, like, completely inconsequential, completely irrelevant. He didn't care, but I'm trying to change your life, right? So years ago, I mean, many, many years ago, 20 years ago, 
uh, a good friend uh, who'd become a Christian a few years after I had. So I became a Christian at 18. He became a Christian about 21. And we reconnected and really started, uh, you know, learning a lot more about Jesus together. But he would come over to uh, my apartment. Carrie and I were newly married, had an apartment in West Des Moines. And he would come over. We'd have these times where he'd come over. And this is before the internet was really, you know, usable in any real true way. There wasn't much on it, and it was dial-up. So we had this thick, thick, thick book that was uh, Strong's Greek Concordance. Right? And he and I, he'd come over to the apartment. I had the book that my father-in-law had given me. And we'd just sit there and go through scripture. And we would just go through it in the Greek. We would go through it in the Greek and just be like complete nerds. And we'd just be getting chills. Oh, that's so powerful. Oh, I can't believe this. Oh, look at this cross-reference to the Old Testament. Look at where this word is used. Oh, this word is a new word that Paul invents it. Oh, it's amazing. At some point, I realized this isn't normal. Like... I thought, like, he and I were like, this is the most amazing thing ever. But then I would tell people, and they would just be like, cool. And I'd be like, no, no, okay. And so I say that because guess what we're going to do today? We're going to go through this text in the Greek and in some other areas, too. I'm going to do a little something new. And so here's what I want you to know. You might be disinterested. I'm trying to change your life. You don't get it, okay? I'm trying to change your life. That's true every Sunday, to be honest. I come here. I don't know why you come. Why I preach is to change your life, and I hope that you can see that and feel that. And this is not about any kind of praying mantis stuff, okay? So it's more interesting than that. But think about it this way. Whatever I say today, whatever I'm doing, the intention is to change your life. And you may take that as like, why does my life need to be changed? Because we all do, right? We're all being conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus. And last time I checked, I wasn't there yet. I don't know about you. And so there's still room for growth. There's still room for maturity. So we have been in a series uh, all summer long called The Good Fight. We have been going essentially verse by verse uh, with some exceptions through the book of 1 Timothy. Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul, the primary apostle, the primary writer of the New Testament, his letter to his young pastoral apprentice, Timothy. Today is the last day. We are closing off the series this morning. So this is it. We are in chapter 6. And what we're going to do to close off this series, The Good Fight, is really, like I said, some good old-fashioned kind of Bible study. We're going to dig in. So I want you to stick with me. I promise it'll go somewhere. Uh, But what we're in right now is 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the last handful of verses. These are Paul's closing thoughts to Timothy. So imagine when you write a letter and you've written about all kinds of different topics and you've weaved in and out of different things and it could be very linear or very not, but then you get to the end and you realize I need to close this off. So you're going to basically put a stamp on this thing, right? Metaphorically speaking, you want to make sure that you leave, right? The person who's received this letter with some powerful thoughts, right? I was told early on when I was learning about preaching that When you preach, people will remember basically the first three minutes of what you say and the last three minutes of what you say. The rest of it in between, eh, you know, low retention rate, which is super encouraging, right, when you're a preacher, but you're like, okay, that's important then. That's why the first three minutes need to be important and the last three minutes need to be important and they need to be linked together. Well, Paul was thinking the same stuff. He was a smart, smart guy. And so he's closing off with some specific thoughts to Timothy. So we're going to dig into this. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 11 through 12, 
And then we're going to actually skip down and do verses 17 through 19. And I've combined these because verses 13 through 16 are kind of some statements that he's already made in some ways, and it's a little bit redundant. So it was okay to kind of just consolidate these. So 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12 and 17 through 19. It's kind of one consistent thought. I have that on the screen if you want to follow along in your physical Bibles, your Bible app. That's completely fine. We're going to be just really, uh, you know, camping out here for a while for the rest of the morning. So this is Paul to Timothy, concluding thoughts in this letter where he's given so much instruction. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. What is all this? It's what he's been talking about prior, right? All these things that... Uh, some that Pastor Jordan talked about last week, it's sin and the love of money and all these things. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So he's really specific. He's not just saying, hey, flee this and go after that, you know, this random kind of abstract nebulous thing. He's saying righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He gives Timothy a list of things. And here's where the series title came from. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that closing statement, that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12 and 17 through 19. So let's start breaking this down. If I could have you guys go back uh, to the beginning of this text where it starts, but you man of God. So verse 11. So here we go. Let's look at this on your app, on your physical Bible, on the screen. We're going to do a whole bunch of words in the Greek and believe me, I'll, I'll bring it all around. So you just have to stick with me. If you're taking notes, I have all this stuff on the screen, okay? So we're going to bounce around a fair amount. But you, man of God, so he's talking about Timothy, who Timothy is, he's identifying him. You are a man of God. Flee from all this. Flee from all of this. The word flee, okay, that's F-L-E-E, -E, obviously, uh, in, in the Greek means to escape, and or to shun, right? So to escape implies, think about uh, you're in a building that has, you know, horrifically caught on fire, right? And you can't take a casual approach to getting out of it. It's kind of a life and death situation. That's the implication of this word. It's to escape, to make your way out of, to get out of there. And to shun, right, we talk about that. If you shun somebody, you give them the hand. That's probably not still a thing, but it was. Like, you give them the hand, right? You shun. You're completely ignoring them. You're, like, basically putting them out of your inner circle. You're letting them know that you're not a part of my life. You're not a part of the things that I want. Like, you are shunned. You're shunned, right? So 
That's what this implies. So I want you to think about that. You, a man of God, escape from these things. Escape from them. Shun them, right? Let them know that you want nothing to do with them and get out of there, right? Don't have anything to do with this stuff. So, but you, man of God, flee. So that's the first one. Flee from all this and pursue, okay? Pursue righteousness. Let's, before we look at the list of things, let's look at this word pursue. This is a big one, okay? In the Greek, it means to aggressively chase, to hunt down like a hunter pursuing a catch, to pursue with intensity, right? So flee, escape as though you're getting away from the thing, shun it, but that's not enough. You also need to go toward something. What I want you to do is pursue, and I'm not talking about a casual approach. This is what the Greek is basically saying. You're aggressively chasing something with intent, right? It is not casual. It is not haphazard. It is not unplanned, right, or unstructured. No, it is like you're hunting down a catch. I'm not a hunter. I've never been hunting, but I know some of you in here are, or even if you're a fisherman, you like to go fishing, right? There are things that you do, right, in order to make sure that if you're hunting for, you know, a deer, you've got to have the right setup, the tree stand, the right equipment. You know, I don't know enough. I'm going to say ridiculous things that don't even make sense for hunting because I don't know enough, but you got to have the right stuff, okay? You've got to make sure, and you'll go to great lengths, right? People use like deer urine and weird things, you know? You'll go to great lengths to make sure that you not only are able to track the thing, but also that you have the equipment necessary to take the thing out. Or if you're a fisherman, there's different kinds of fish and different kinds of lakes or whatever, and you're using different kinds of rods and reels and lures and all that kind of stuff, the right kind of bait. So this is a planned out, methodical, intentional approach to catching something, right? And you know what you're going after, and you know what you need, and so you are doing this. Like, you are tracking this down. You are chasing this aggressively, pursuing with intent, right? You're not just throwing, like, a random worm into the lake and hoping something bites it. No, it's, it's different than that, okay? So he's saying escape and then chase down this thing. So now here's what we're going to get into the list. The first thing he says is righteousness. I'm not going to spend as much time on these, um, but they are incredibly important, so you're taking notes or if you're you know writing or want to snap pictures that's fine too but righteousness what he's saying is that which is deemed right by God right or what is right in God's eyes which includes justice this word actually has a lot to do with justice so we've talked about this a lot and the old testament talks about this a lot the new testament talks about this a lot but the part of our job as Christians is to seek justice for the oppressed to seek justice for those who've had wrong done to them to seek out justice for those who've been wrongly accused or whatever that looks like in lots of different ways. This is what is deemed right by God. So your life is aggressively pursuing the things that are deemed right by God. And part of that is seeking out justice for the oppressed, for the orphan and the widow. Right? So that's the first thing Paul wants Timothy to do. And he's instructing essentially us to do as well, to aggressively chase or to hunt down that which is deemed right by God, that which is right in his eyes. The next thing is that he wants him to aggressively pursue is godliness. And in the Greek, this means devotion and reverence, right? So it's a devotion to, the, to God, that you're aggressively pursuing this idea that your whole life is his, that you are bought with a price, that you are not your own, contrary to what our culture might say, 
right? That you have willingly subjected yourself as a slave to Jesus and you are devoted, so you're aggressively pursuing what that devotion looks like because how many of you know, right? Our flesh goes against that, right? We want to live our lives for ourselves. We want to do these things and I'm just as guilty uh, as anybody else of this. So there's a battle going on, but you're aggressively pursuing that devotion to him, that he is not just your savior, but he is your Lord. He is the commander of your life. And you're also, you're doing that in part because you revere him. You understand that he is God and you are not, that he is the creator of the universe, right? If you've ever read the book of Job, Job goes on for all these chapters, literally like 30-some chapters, where he just complains and complains about different things. And then God finally speaks and God says, cool, Job, glad you said all that. You talked forever. Now it's my turn. Let me ask you this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? You know, where were you when I set the stars in their place and gave the constellations their names? Where were you when I created all the things in the ocean? Where were you? And it's the intent here is that God is our, our Father. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, and the Holy Spirit is in us and empowers us. But, like, he's still God, and we're still not, right? And we're supposed to be devoted to him because we're thankful for what he's done, also because of just who he is, and there's a reverence that goes with that. So we're to pursue the things that please him, devotion to him, and we're to have reverence for him and not take things lightly, right? Not just treat it like, oh, it's another, you know, Sunday, it's another this, it's another that, like, I'll do this when I want or not. No, this is a big deal. The next word is faith. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he's saying to pursue faith? It's not something we think about pursuing. But in the Greek, it means to be properly persuaded. And this implies that it's not just a relationship sort of of like emotion where we like certain songs that, you know, the worship team plays or that we like the, the feeling of being on a Sunday morning, but that we're intellectually bound to God as well, that we're properly persuaded, that we're pursuing, right, reasons for our faith. This is called in Christianity, this like apologetics, right, that we're, that we're not just saying, well, I have faith, but then people ask us, like, why? And you're like, I don't know. I just, that's what faith is. No, faith isn't not knowing anything, right? Right? Faith is understanding, like, what you're putting your trust in as much as you possibly can within reason. There are always elements of trust involved, but we're not supposed to check our brains at the door. In fact, Peter, in his letter, says, be ready at all times, Right? Be ready at all times to give an answer, to give a reason for the hope you have in Jesus, in order to do that, you have to be properly persuaded. You have to know that which you've placed your faith and trust in. So Paul's telling Timothy, all of these, there's a lot going on here. Are we getting that? There's a lot of implications. We read it, and it's just a list of words. But when you go to the Greek and you understand what these words actually mean and how they play themselves out, it's a lot. So the next thing after faith is love. And to love, interestingly, the word that's used here in the Greek just simply means to prefer God which is kind of a summation of all that we've talked about so far, isn't it? It's like that you prefer God to anything else, right? That no matter what else is going on in your life, all the things the world has to offer, all the lures, so to speak, of the world, all the trappings of the world, all that, that stuff, you don't even prefer it anymore, right? You're aggressively pursuing, hunting down, preferring God, where you want God above anything else, Right, where that other stuff may have a bit of an attraction, but it's not as attractive to you as God is and the things of God and righteousness, right? And faith and love and all these things we've talked about that you are pursuing, preferring God, that you can't get enough, that you love God so much that you and a friend are going through Strong's Greek Concordance, right? 
in the Greek, and you're just blown away by that. Like, that's what we're talking about here, that you prefer God, that God always takes first place in your life, first priority, right, in your life, that everything else fits in around him, not vice versa, right? That he is the first priority, and everything else has to bow to him. The next thing, and I promise we'll get through these eventually, um, the next thing is endurance. Really simple, the Greek just means a patient waiting. A patient waiting. That one I don't need to spend a lot of time on. The next one he's talking about is gentleness. And that's power with control. Isn't that interesting? Gentle, I feel like the translation of this is a little, it's not ideal, because gentleness as we think of it is very different than what the word actually means in the Greek. It's actually having power with control. It's knowing who you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit that's available to you and that lives inside of you, the eternal destiny that you have, your authority as a believer, the rights that you have as a son or a daughter of the Most High God, all these things, it's knowing all that and being crystal clear in that and being confident in that, right? But not having a spirit that wields that as a weapon, right? Because you can know all those things and you can be an arrogant jerk, right? Or you can take that stuff and you can beat people over the head with it or you can use it in a judgmental manner. What Paul is telling Timothy is have all those things in place, right? You've got power. You've got authority. You are the son of the most high God, but your, the idea is to have control, right? You're not looking for a fight all the time. You're not out there like, no, you're staying steady. You're staying calm. You're staying centered in who you are, And you have to pursue that because, again, most of us aren't necessarily naturally that great at that, right? We get a little bit of power, and we want a little bit more. We want to use it in ways that maybe aren't very controlled. And it's difficult. The more power you get, the more understanding of who you are, it's difficult to control it. That's why the old philosophical saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely has been true. It's an axiom that's existed for a long time. And we see that, right? But Paul's saying, you be different. Yes, you have power. Yes, you have authority. Yes, you have identity, but control it. Don't hit people over the head with it. So then he goes through all that. So we got, and then we're going to skip over, fight the good fight of the faith. We talked about that a lot already. And then again, this is an interesting one. If we could have uh, verse 12, I think, 11 and 12 back up there. It says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life. So the phrase take hold of is actually one word in the Greek. And this echoes the word he used earlier for pursue. Take hold of means to seize, to aggressively chase, sometimes with hostile intent, right? With personal initiative. Again, this is not a casual thing. This isn't some sort of laissez-faire, like devil-may-care attitude. What he's saying is take hold of the eternal life. I want you to seize it. Like I want you to grab it by the throat, right? I want you to aggressively chase it down, sometimes with hostile intent, right? We don't usually think about pursuing or trying to live the Christian life as something we're doing with hostile intent. 
But this is the word that Paul chooses to use. He's trying to get across to Timothy and the people that would read this letter that, again, this is something you have to go after. This is something you can't just be like, eh, about and expect it to show up. This is something you've got to chase down, to hunt down, to seize, to aggressively chase. Sometimes with hostile intent, you're like, I don't, what does that look like? Two things from the New Testament. One is the story where the four friends carried the man on the mat, the paralytic, right, to Jesus. And there were people crowded all around, and they couldn't get to him. And they didn't just say, eh, forget it, right? They, had, they were trying to seize the moment. They were trying to take hold, right, of this eternal life. They were aggressively chasing it down. And on some level, you could make the case that they had hostile intent. We think of hostile a certain way that necessarily it's not talking about here. But they were like, forget about this. We don't care. This is our friend. We got him here. He needs to be healed. They climb on a roof, and they cut a hole in somebody else's roof right? That's hostile intent. When is the last time you did something like that when it came to the Christian life? When you were like, nothing's stopping me. I don't care. I'm going to get after this. That's what Paul's talking about here. Take hold. Take hold of this. Another story is where Jesus talks about, makes this really sort of uh, abstract, mysterious statement that we wouldn't understand, but when you dig into it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And he says, in the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the, violence will take it, the violent will take it by force. It's in Matthew 21. From the time of John the Baptist to the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent will take it by force. The word suffers actually doesn't mean like suffering like in pain. It means has allowed, has permitted, has been okay with. The kingdom of heaven has suffered, has been allowed, or has allowed, has been okay with, has permitted violence, and the violent will take it by force. It's actually an encouragement to those who are hungry, to those who won't settle, to those who won't say, ah, I'm good with whatever, but who want more. And Jesus is actually encouraging people to have that behavior. He's saying, go after it. He rebukes the Pharisees at one point, and he says, Listen, guys, you stand in the doorway. So imagine a small doorway, right, that you're trying to enter in. He says, you stand in the doorway to the kingdom of heaven. So they're right there. And he's like, and you refuse to enter in. So they're just standing there. I guess I'd be turned this way. They're standing there, right, and they won't enter in. And he says, and you refuse to let others too. And then he talks about how, but there's a time, and it's here and now, where nobody will care. And they want to get in, and they will knock you over. And you know what? I'm okay with it. That's strong language. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, there are people who don't care, right, about like proper religious customs. There are people who don't care about what may seem right in the world's eyes in terms of how you behave in certain ways. They're so hungry for the kingdom, they will literally knock you over, right, step on your face as they walk through, not maybe literally, but they, to get into the kingdom. And you know what? I'm okay with that. In fact, I want that. I want people to go after it like that. And that's what Paul is echoing here. Take hold of that, right, with hostile intent. When's the last time you felt that way about pursuing the kingdom of God or the things of Jesus? That you almost had like this holy aggression, this holy hostility, right? That you just wanted something so bad, you were like, forget about all this other stuff. I'm going after it. And he says, take hold of eternal life. We should probably know what he's encouraging Timothy to take hold of. And I know I talked about it a little bit just there, but eternal in this sense does not focus on the future per se. 
which is interesting because you think maybe he's talking about salvation, but that wouldn't make any sense. Why would he tell Timothy, who's clearly already a Christian, already saved, why would he tell him to take hold, to aggressively pursue something he already has? doesn't make any sense. So there must be more to it. In this case, it's talking about the quality, right, of the time it relates to, what it means in the Greek. And I think I have this up. Yeah, there we go. So believers live an eternal life right now, experiencing this quality of God's life now as a present possession. He didn't just come to save us. Jesus didn't save us just for some future time when he would return, whatever your sort of eschatology, end times theology is. He didn't just save us for that. He saved us for then and now. How many of you have been saved like in this life, right? Like Jesus didn't just save you for some, but he saved you. He changed your life. He literally maybe saved you, right, in many, many ways. And he continues to save you on a daily basis from a meaningless, pointless life that's just given over to temporal things that the world has to offer. So your salvation is present because right now you're being saved from nonsense. You're being saved from a worthless existence, right? So he's talking about you're taking hold of the the right now moments, this eternal life where you get to experience a little bit or a lot, hopefully, of heaven on earth. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because he believed it could be and that it's supposed to be and that it is. And so Paul's saying, take hold of this here and now, the already but not yet of the kingdom. Pray that prayer and go after it. Do the things to bring that into your being in conjunction and relationship with the Holy Spirit. So that's eternal. And then life, I already kind of covered both a physical and spiritual existence. So there's a a beautiful duality there, right? All right, now we're getting to the end of the Greek. Are we kind of still with me? Remember, I'm trying to change your life. Don't look at me like I'm talking about the praying mantis stuff, okay? This is good. This is, I, I get excited about this, and I know it's weird, but I love it. So, Then he starts talking, and he switches gears, which is really interesting. But you have to think about why. So he just told Timothy to flee all these things and to pursue these other things and to take hold of eternal life. And then suddenly he switches gears and has this really crazy, almost, if you look at it on the surface level, kind of closing statements. Right? And he says, command those who are rich in this present world. And then he goes on from there. So let's talk about that. Command those who are rich. Some air conditioning blowing my pants. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope. So the word rich in the Greek literally just means abounding in material resources. Command those who have a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff, a lot of money, a lot of money to buy stuff. Okay, command those who are abounding in material resources not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and then to be rich in good deeds. That phrase, rich in good deeds, is actually one word in the Greek. So let's look at that. It literally means command them to be abounding in things that are attractively good. Good that inspires And there's a connotation here of motivation in the Greek. Good that inspires or motivates others to embrace what is lovely, beautiful, praiseworthy. So well, and i.e. well done so as to be appealing. Command those who have lots of stuff, who are abounding in material 
resources, not to put their trust in the world, but to be rich in good deeds. And it's a very specific kind of thing. They are rich, that they are doing lots of things that are attractively good. Good that inspires and motivates others to embrace what is lovely. Well done as so to be appealing. In other words, you're, he's saying live their lives in such a way that their good deeds, right, reveals the beauty of Christ, reveals the love of Christ, reveals the testimony and the truth and the amazingness of the gospel, right? These aren't just things that are supposed to be done necessarily in private, and they're certainly not supposed to be done for our own glory, but they are supposed to be done. Our light is supposed to shine in such a way that it reveals the light of Christ to the world. And he's saying they shouldn't just do these things every once in a while. He's using the same word rich, abounding, right? So if they're abounding in material resources, they should abound in basically doing things that attract other people. They should use what they have as a way to draw others to Jesus. That's the simplest way to put it. Abound in things that are attractively good. And then he says, very specifically, they should be generous, right? To be rich in good deeds and to be generous. Now, this is where, this is a super important piece of this, where if we read it, it seems like two things, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous. But really, it's actually basically one thing, and it's a thing that you do with a mentality in which you do it, right? So there's an intent, there's an action, there's an intent, but there's a motivation, right? There's all these things. Generous here refers to spontaneous, willing giving and emphasizes being ready for outreach. It describes someone who open-handedly shares without regret or afterthought. So there are things in your life, if you are wealthy, if you are abounding in material possessions and resources, you are to do good things that attract others to Jesus. And there's certainly a methodical, planned out, intentional approach. Like maybe, you know, you go to World Vision's website and you're sponsoring, you know, three or four kids over there or whatever. But there's also almost a planning and preparation, which sounds counterintuitive, but there's almost a planning and preparation for sort of being spontaneous in your generosity, for being ready at all times to reach out to people, to always have an open hand and you're not worried about, you know, afterwards you're not like, should I have done that? Oh man, I really can't believe I did that. Like regret or afterthought. A way that I would describe this is something like this. You know, yeah, you're sponsoring kids from World Vision and yeah, you're helping out with food distribution and yeah, you're doing that stuff. But maybe also you intentionally go to the bank and maybe you get $100 and $5 bills and you get some other stuff too. And you just have that in the console of your car. Because you might see somebody, right, at a street corner or whatever that's in need. And so it's spontaneous in the sense of you didn't know they were going to be there, but you have kind of planned ahead of time, right, and you've gone to this length to have these $5 bills to give out or, or whatever it is. I know that's, you know, you can maybe you could do tens if you want. I don't know, but I'm saying, like, just giving you an example of what's going on here. So it's open-handed without regret or afterthought, and it's spontaneous, so there's intentionality, but there's also spontaneity to it. And there's an interesting combination that's hard for us to understand because those things, those things seem mutually exclusive, right? Like how can you be intentional and spontaneous? There's an intentionality and preparation for being spontaneous. It's really interesting, I think. And then he says, do this stuff so that they may be, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Coming age is that which is about to happen. So he's emphasizing here this reality that Jesus can come back at any time. So all this stuff you're doing, you're doing with this understanding that at any time Jesus could, Jesus could return and usher in, you know, the end of the age, so to speak. 
So you're in preparation for that. You're realizing all the things here, it's all going to go anyway, a lot of ways. And so you're storing up your treasures in heaven. And then lastly, he says this again, right? I love this. As a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the last part in the Greek. They may take hold of, he says again, to seize, to aggressively chase. Sometimes he uses this again. I think he's trying to communicate something here. He used the same word basically now. This is essentially the third time that he's used this language in this very short passage. They may take hold of. They're doing all these things that they may pursue to aggressively chase. They may, they may hunt down. And then he says, the life that is truly life. I love that. It implies that there's a life that's not truly life. It implies that there's a life that's counterfeit, that's foreign, that's other, that may appear like life, but it's a vapor. It's a mist. It doesn't have any weight or value to it. He's saying that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And the last thing in the Greek that is truly life, it just means real, actual, and genuine. They may aggressively pursue that which is real, which is actual, which is genuine, Here's how you do that. You aggressively chase down all these things. Now, that's the end of the Greek. I want to read this to you one last time, ask you a question, and then we're going to be done. I'm going to read you 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12, 17 through 19, in a new, I don't know if you've heard about this version, it's a newer version of the Bible, of Scripture. It's very limited currently. And it's called the Josh Goodman version. <laughs> so these four or five verses, this is the stuff that, again, I love to do. So I kind of have done like an expanded version with all of the Greek, with all of the Greek and all of the tenses and all of the implications and all of the language basically made into stuff that will make sense to, to you. Um. So I know a lot of the Greek, you're like, I don't care. Well, this hopefully will sum it up, what I'm trying to say in a way. So I'm going to read through this, maybe comment on it once or twice just for clarification. Then I'll ask you a question at the end, and we'll kind of, kind of be done. So 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12, 17 through 19, the Josh Goodman version. If you hate it, don't email me. Uh, so it just is. I just like it. I just like it. So it's fun. So he, he says this. This is not copyrighted, so uh, not that I'd have to worry about any of that. So it says, Timothy. So just listen to this as your best. If you want to take pictures, that's fine too. Timothy, because of who you are and who God has called you to be, I want you to do whatever it takes to steer clear of the dead and demonic systems of the world. That being said, Simply running away from something isn't a good overall approach to life. If you want to be healthy and whole in Jesus, you need to focus on running toward something. In this case, I want you to run toward all that God desires for you, and I want you to hunt it down as though it had stolen your wallet and you were trying to form tackle it in the hopes of recovering said wallet. I want you to chase after the sort of life that really and truly means something. 
And I'm not talking only about the future days when Jesus returns, but right here and right now. What I'm talking about looks like getting down in the dirt on your hands and knees, being smack dab in the thick of things, and every day, from the moment your eyes open, committing yourself to being someone who was fully given over to God and is willing to be shaped and modeled or shaped and molded however he desires. More specifically, I want you to be a man who loves spending time with him being being God, excuse me, and prioritizes it. I want you to protect your childlike awe with regards to who the Father is and what he's done for us through Jesus. I want you to stay locked in on being filled with the Holy Spirit and showing the love of Jesus to everyone around you. As I've mentioned to you previously, a big part of how you can do that or how you can demonstrate the love of Jesus to others is by helping to meet their physical needs. This could be food, clothing, shelter, friendship, or all of the above. And while I certainly don't expect you to do all of this on your own, I do want you to set an example to the best of your ability and teach others to follow your example. For those in your church who have more than enough, it's especially important that you remind them over and over that they need to be proactively seeking ways to give what they have away. I say proactively. Here's where you may not like it. I say proactively because most of them live in a part of the city where the needs are few and less than obvious. So they may have to drive in order to find someone requiring help. I'd also suggest they adopt a mindset of assuming that they haven't been blessed with financial means for their own pleasure and benefit alone, but also and possibly more so for the benefit of others. Basically, they should look for any and every opportunity to do things that make others wonder what's wrong with them in the best way possible because they are so radically generous and unconcerned with hoarding their wealth. In doing this, they will not only point others to Jesus, but they will also save themselves from a life turned in on itself, a life that is primarily defined by shopping, comfort, and creating distance from others and usually a lot of vacations. Instead of doing what Jesus did, which was to wait deeper and deeper into people's pain and to help set them free. Let them know that I said they should stop at nothing to get all Jesus has for them. Have them imagine that it's Black Friday and the ridiculous deal on the way too large television at Walmart represents the calling they've received from God. Forget politeness, forget decorum, forget the fact that there's an 80-year-old grandmother with a walker going after the same TV. Do whatever it takes to get it. This example may seem a little over the top, but that metaphorical television represents the kingdom of God, and any impediments to getting it are the traps the enemy sets for us through the comfort and complacency that excess produces. Sidestep the traps, Timothy. Leap over the pitfalls, avoid the hazards, teach others to do the same, and the rewards, both future and immediate, will be beyond anything this world has to offer. In closing, I know as well as anyone that this is easier said than done, so I'm asking you to be patient with yourself and with those who simply don't get it yet. Keep putting one foot in front of the other and don't lose sight of the finish line. The work you're doing is good work. I love you, Timothy, and I'm proud of both the man you are and the man you're becoming. Hope to see you soon. Hopefully something there landed, and hopefully you're like, okay, 
Now I get it. Now I get the implications of what Paul is saying, what I'm trying to communicate this morning. So the question to close with is this. After all I've just said, what are you hunting down? That's it. What are you hunting down? What are you aggressively pursuing? What are you chasing down with intentionality in your life? Are you aggressively pursuing? Are you stalking the kingdom of God? Are you methodically planning and preparing yourself to take hold of it? Are you seizing every opportunity that might be out there to grab it? Are you all in? Are you going after it? Are you hunting it down? Or are you hunting down something different? Are you hunting down the things of this world? The lies that the things of this world can fulfill you? That the next fill in the blank is going to You know, somehow, finally, you're going to arrive. The next promotion, the next house, the next vehicle, right? The next relationship, the next whatever, right? What is it? What are you hunting down? If you opened up your life to five people that you trusted who were going after Jesus, and you said, all access, look at my life, and you tell me, what am I hunting down? What does it look like I am aggressively pursuing, trying to take hold of, stalking, ready to kill, right? What does it look like I'm really all in for? What would they say? What do you think that they would say? Does your life look like to those around you that you are single-minded, that you are locked in, that you are devoted to Jesus, and everything else is on the periphery, Everything else is just sort of maybe a trap or a pitfall or is inconsequential in some ways. And it's only the things of God that you really want, that you love him in the sense that you strongly prefer him over anything else. And that is revealed by your priorities. There's a whole other conversation about what that looks like. And I wish I had time to go into it today, but I think you get the gist of it by what we just went through. Right? What are you hunting down? Is it the kingdom of God or is it the kingdoms of this world? Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that we would be collectively a church of obviously individuals that we're comprised of, but that is one family, as Josh mentioned, his communion thought, that it's one family that we are together aggressively pursuing you, your kingdom, all that you have to offer us that we would stop at nothing to get more of you, that we wouldn't worry about politeness, political correctness, decorum, right? Social norms, any of those things. We wouldn't worry about that stuff in our pursuit of you, that we would go full force after you, that we would take hold and seize your kingdom. It says (laughs) that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And we want to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hands to be able to receive it. Pray that we would receive it as you've offered it to us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.